2: The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Industrial Artifacts is home to more than 20,000 square feet of vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects, each with a story to tell. For instance, perusing their wares just now, I discovered a strange three-dimensional sign for Norwich Union Fire Insurance Society, one of the oldest fire insurance companies founded in 1797. Up until 1929, signs like this one, called insurance marks, were put up to denote what buildings were insured by whom. Why? Because fire insurance companies had their own fire brigades. Rather than city fire departments, the insurance companies themselves were the way you got people to come quench the flames. But only if you had the insurance mark. If not, tough luck. That's just one of thousands of items available at Industrial Artifacts, They've got everything you need to outfit a new bar, office, or even your kitchen. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order, simply by entering coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. So go to industrialartifacts.net today and remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Ah, 19th century insurance industry, the original protection racket. Let's review. July 24th, 1915. 848 people are killed on the Chicago River when the SS Eastland capsizes while still moored to harbor. The bodies are retrieved by boats, welders, and divers, including a perjury-prone fabulist named William Frenchie Deneau. Four months later, Frenchy is putting in cable for Commonwealth Edison on the river, not far from where the Eastland disaster happened. It's not clear exactly where Frenchy was, but somewhere around Wolf Point, the northwest corner of Chicago's downtown loop, maybe a few blocks east, maybe a few blocks south, he stubs his toe on a hunk of steel, which he quickly identifies, amazingly, as a 40-foot-long abandoned submarine. When Frenchy manages to dredge it up in January, he reportedly discovers the remains of a man and a dog inside. The submarine quickly acquires the name Foolkiller due to a Chicago accountant turned daredevil named Peter Neeson, who designed a number of wacky crafts at the turn of the century, which he gave that name. But contrary to what Frenchy and the media said, Neeson hadn't built the submarine and wasn't inside of it because he died rolling across Lake Michigan in a giant inflatable ball. Unconcerned with its importance or origins, Frenchy displays his find at a skee-ball arcade at 208 South State Street, then sells it off to an Iowa carnival, who perhaps sell it to Riverview Amusement Park on Chicago's northwest side. And then it disappears. There are a surprising number of possible inventors for the fool killer, but a little investigation shows we can rule each of them out. Reverend George Garrett built a couple of subs that ended up sinking, but they were mostly in England, and by the time the Fool Killer could have been built, he had given up and was bankrupting a farm in Florida. Professor Josiah Tuck, who almost certainly wasn't a professor, built a couple of subs he called Peacemakers in and around New York in the 1880s. He spent his fortune making them until the banks took possession and sold them for scratch, while Tuck's family had him committed to a mental asylum. That's a no-go on Tuck. John Holland is the only name in the story that isn't totally obscure, but that's to his case's detriment. He manufactured the first submarines for the U.S. Navy, as well as one for a group of Irish nationals intent on invading Canada. But each and every one of his boats is accounted for, and couldn't have ended up in Chicago. Simon Lake made some subs for the Navy too, but his designs looked nothing like the Fool Killer, and he never seems to have gotten near the Great Lakes. George Baker and Richard Raditz, on the other hand, each made subs that did ply Lake Michigan, but neither of them were the right size, shape, or materials, and we pretty much know where each ended up, not the Chicago River. Which leaves Laudner Phillips, who was building submarines in the 1840s and 50s that he claimed had incredible abilities. Most folks who've looked into the fool-killer mystery have settled, with varying degrees of displeasure, on Phillips, But when he was supposedly building his boat in Chicago, the river basically didn't exist, and he had no access to steel. That's it. That's everybody. I've looked at this thing backwards and forwards, upside down and inside out. No known maker of submarines in the 19th or early 20th century fits the bill. How could that be? Well, that's when the idea occurred to me. What if the fool killer wasn't a submarine at all. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this is the final episode of a series investigating that supposed submarine, The Fool Killer Part 5, The White Whale. I first solved the mystery of the Foolkiller around a year ago. Having worked unsuccessfully through each noted submarine builder of the 19th and early 20th century, I had one of those outside-the-box thoughts. Maybe the thing Frenchie Deneau pulled out of the river wasn't a submarine. If the Foolkiller was just a boat, then almost anybody could have built it. If the Fool Killer was just a boat, it might explain why nobody recorded it being in Chicago. If the Fool Killer was just a boat, nobody would have made a big googleable stink about it sinking. There was only one problem. The Fool Killer didn't look like a boat. Not like any boat I'd ever seen, at least. It looked, as you can guess, like a submarine. And why would a boat, built somewhere before 1900, look like that? Surprisingly, I can answer that. When the Bessemer process for creating steel finally took hold after 1866, far too late for Laudner Phillips just to rub it in, the Great Lakes waterways, already trafficked by thousands of ships, were put into overdrive. Michigan, Minnesota, and upper Wisconsin had mainly supplied lumber and copper, but suddenly their large deposits of iron ore were extremely valuable, and most of it had to be transported via the Great Lakes and their adjoining rivers and locks. The explosive growth of steel in the region was a self-reinforcing process. The very steel the ships were shipping was also shipped to steel the ships. With the new miracle material, ships could be built larger, cheaper, and safer. Potentially. In practice, an average of 10% of the Great Lakes fleet sunk, wrecked, or broke every season. That fleet numbered more than 3,000 ships at its height, which means, let's do the math here, math isn't scary, it's our friend, that around 300 ships were going down each year. Why were the casualties so severe? Well, sailing is dangerous, that's not a very exciting headline, but the general dangerousness of water work was magnified by two factors. One, the Great Lakes are really rough waters, particularly lakes Superior and Michigan, which are especially huge. Late in the sailing season, the waves on Superior and Michigan can hit nearly 30 feet, and they come much faster than on the open ocean. Typical ocean waves have a period of about 20 seconds. On the Great Lakes, that period is cut to between 3 and 5 seconds. That's four times as many waves buffeting ships on freshwater compared to salt. Oh, that's important to say, too. The Great Lakes don't have any salt, so things floated on them are less buoyant, substantially less buoyant than on the sea. The waters are big, the waters are fast, but these are still lakes, littered with shoals and sandbars and rocky outcroppings and hazards galore. A Great Lakes freight voyage might take weeks to go from the head of Superior at Duluth, Minnesota, down to the head of Lake Michigan at Chicago. But unlike a similarly long oceanic voyage, there were never long periods of assured deep water. You could hit something at any time. The other compounding danger of shipping in the area was the rivers and locks. A larger ship might handle the lakes better, but you could only build so big if you needed to get through the various locks that connected each lake to one another and to the rivers that brought your cargo to its eventual destination. So instead of building bigger, Great Lakes Freight in the 1870s through the turn of the century had to content itself to pulling smaller barges across the lakes and down the rivers. With steamship propellers getting better every year, the muscle of the work was fairly simple. The barges, though, were not. Most of the barges, or consorts, of the time were old wooden schooners with the masts and sails sawed off. And the new purpose-built barges followed the same basic design and shape as the jury-rigged ones. It was a less-than-ideal arrangement. The old ship bows and decks didn't follow their toes very well. The wash from the lead boat's propellers kicked them around, and they were liable to get blown about or keeled in high winds and waves. The new steamships and the old sailing ones they dragged around with them were, in short, not very compatible. Just take basic navigation on the lakes, for instance. If there are big waves, a steamship wants to turn its nose into them and plow through. But sailing ships were never built to move against the waves because that typically would mean to move against the wind, which is the opposite of the point. So a steamship captain on Lake Michigan towing a consort was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Like the black-and-white section of a late-night infomercial, there had to be a better way. Enter Alexander MacDougall. MacDougall was born in Scotland in 1845. The family was frightfully poor, so in 1854, they moved to Ontario in hopes his father could find better work there. It sort of happened. He quickly found gainful employment at a mill in Collingwood. But within a year, there was an accident at said mill, and McDougal's dad was killed. That left Alex, just 10 years old, as the man of the house, back when such a figure was very much a necessity. In 1861, when he was 16, he worked as a blacksmith's apprentice, up until July, when he signed on as a deckhand on the steamship Edith and ran away from home. He returned at the end of the year with a box of silver coins he earned on his off hours, shining shoes for passengers, some cornmeal, a rifle, and, for his mother, an oven. In his autobiography, he says,
3: Uh, Often since then I've made in a single year what seemed a fortune to me but was never so rich in my life as when I took the new stove and meal and the dimes back to my mother. It was the first time since the family left Port Ellen in Scotland that we really had all we wanted to eat. There was no
2: turning back from this tiny bit of comfort. McDougal was hooked. Over the next nine seasons, he worked his way up from deckhand to porter to second mate to first mate to pilot. During the winter of 1870, he helped build the China, the India, and the Japan, three of the first steel ships on the lakes. When SS Japan was completed in September of 1871, McDougall was given command as captain. Five years later, he got his second command, a passenger ship called City of Duluth. McDougal set down roots in the City of Duluth, even though the ship, the City of Duluth, was confusingly based out of Chicago, don't worry about it, and married Emmeline Ross in 1876. A few more commands and successful side gigs bring us to 1880, when Alexander MacDougall first started working on the Great Lakes barge problem. Let's hand it back to the man himself to describe his
3: process. While captain of the Hiawatha, towing the Minihana and Goshawk through the difficult and dangerous channels of our rivers, I thought out a plan to build an iron boat cheaper than wooden vessels. I first made a plan and models for a boat with a flat bottom designed to carry the greatest cargo on the least water, with rounded top so water cannot stay on board, with a spoon-shaped bow to best follow the line of strain with the least use of rudder and with turrets on deck for passage into the interior of the hull. After demonstrating my idea by models, I could not get anything from ship owners and from captains except comments such as, She'll roll over, having no masts to hold her up, or She has no flat deck and bulwarks to keep the waves off, or You call that damn thing a boat? Why, it looks more like a pig.
2: McDougal was hardly discouraged. He spent every red cent he had building Barge 101, which he launched in 1888. Barge 101 was the first of what his detractors called pig boats, but which he called whalebacks. Both terms are pretty accurately descriptive. The boats and ships built by McDougall's newly formed American Steel Barge Company had pointy spoon bows like a sow's nose, but their bodies were smooth, rounded cylinders that sat low in the water, like a barely-breaching humpback. I'd say, all things being equal, they looked more like whales than pigs. But what they really looked more like were... Yeah... Submarines. The arguments for McDougall's whalebacks were that one, they could hold a lot of freight without sitting too deep in the water to pass through the locks; two, their bows could handle the wash from being pulled by a boat or going headfirst into waves; three, the enclosed, rounded top would cause waves to crash right over them, making them virtually unsinkable. In each of these ways, the whalebacks were, uh, well. Less successful than Hope, but still very successful. When people talk about McDougal's whalebacks, they often tell the story as if they were miserable, catastrophic failures. But that's not so. The ships themselves performed pretty well on the whole. They had problems, for sure. They sat low in the water, which made them hard to see, so they had a nasty habit of being run over by other conventional ships. Their hatches were small, so they were tough to load and unload, and the hatches had to be curvy, like the ship. Over time, the bowing of those curves meant the hatches lost their watertight seals, which made them quite sinkable indeed. And to make up for the difficulty in loading and unloading, several of the whalebacks were eventually retrofitted with cranes on their decks, which made them top-heavy and caused most of those ones to capsize and sink. Remember, though, the average loss for the Great Lakes fleet was 10% per year. So while that all may sound bad, it's well within the standard deviation. The average service life of the whalebacks was nearly 40 years, which is pretty damn impressive, especially considering that almost all of them were built in a period of just half a decade, between 1888 and 1893. The real failure of the whalebacks was a business one. To finance the building of the whalebacks, McDougal went into business with John D. Rockefeller, owner of Standard Oil and the richest man in history. In 1889, they struck a deal. McDougal sold all of his patents to the American Steel Barge Company for $25,000 worth of stock, but Rockefeller's financial handler, Frederick T. Gates, thought it was a bad investment. McDougal was pushed out of the company, and slowly but surely, Rockefeller bought up all of the other shipbuilding companies in the country and formed them all into a virtual monopoly. Monopolies were sort of Rockefeller's bag, called the American Shipbuilding Company. With one gigantic conglomerate in charge of the whole industry, freighter design became standardized, with no room for the queer whalebacks. Anyway, that's all beside the point. The question is, could the 40-foot-long Foolkiller submarine, found in the Chicago River, actually have been a misidentified 40-foot-long whaleback boat? In total, 44 whalebacks were built. One was made in Washington, and one was made in London. The rest were floated on the Great Lakes, meaning that I just had to go through the records of 42 vessels, 17 propeller ships, and 25 barges to see if any of them fit the bill. that sounds like fun. Let's begin with the most famous of the whalebacks, everything is relative, the SS Christopher Columbus. Launched in 1892, the Christopher Columbus is the only whaleback to have been built as a passenger liner to carry thousands of tourists to and from Chicago's Columbian Exposition of 1893. She was an exquisite ship, painted bright ivory like the white city she brought the people to, Her slooping, rounded, whalish hull cut above the waterline, shooting the six-mile route from Navy Pier to the Jackson Park fairgrounds in just 20 minutes with 5,000 aboard. She was also pretty strange-looking. With four decks and a giant steam stack atop, it looked almost like a whale had surfaced beneath a cruise ship and begun carrying it around on its back. And what a cruise ship! Inside, the Christopher Columbus was decked in electric lighting, illuminating the velvet carpets, oak paneling, etched glass, and marble columns. There were two restaurants, a movie theater, a barbershop, and even an indoor bike track. Postcards from the Great World's Fair, birthplace of cream of wheat and braille printing, moving walkways and electric trains, the Ferris Wheel, and Harry Houdini's Escape Act, featured, instead of any of that, the strange, tall Queen of the Lakes as the ship was affectionately known. After the World's Fair, Columbus was leased to the Goodrich Transit Line, who added yet another deck to the ship's already curious height, complete with new state houses, and put her to work making regular daily voyages between Chicago and Milwaukee. S.S. Christopher Columbus remained a popular and sightly way to make the commute up until 1915, when its notable height suddenly became a liability. Up until then, the tall... Almost gravity-defying profile of Columbus had been its strongest selling point. But after July 24th, when the SS Eastland capsized at harbor, killing nearly 850 people just east of Christopher Columbus's regular berth, people saw the immense ship in a different light. To assuage fears and stem the exodus of passengers, Christopher Columbus steamed out onto Lake Michigan with 4,000 sacks of sand piled around her decks, and 300 crew who moved the weight from one side of the ship to the other while the whaleback whirled around in tight circles before tugs and pleasure boats and a crowd who watched from back on shore. The Chicago Daily Tribune wrote of the demonstration, 300 lives, the steamship worth $400,000, and the reputation of the Goodrich Transit Company were all risked in the undertaking. Experts declared the test satisfactory. Alexander McDougal, long since removed from his position as a shipbuilder and visionary, was there in Chicago to see the Queen of the Lakes that day. He said with pride that she was as steady as a church. Obviously, if the SS Christopher Columbus was in the position of responding to the Eastland disaster, it couldn't have been at the bottom of the river for Frenchie Deneau to find. It remained in service until 1936. The Barge Sagamore was run over by the steamer Northern Queen near Sainte-Saint-Marie in 1901. It sank so quickly that the captain and cook went down too, along with several tons of iron ore. The SS James B. Colgate went down on Lake Erie in a storm. Captain Walter Grashaw said that the bow of the Colgate had gone straight under the waves. He was rescued after a day and a half, stranded on a lifeboat. The rest of the 22-man crew weren't so lucky. The fastest icebreaker on the lakes, SS Henry Court, sunk three times. In 1917, it was hit by another ship that failed to see its low profile on Lake Erie. It was raised, but then ran into a reef on the Detroit River and barely managed to make it to River Rouge, where it sank not far from the place George Baker had sat at the bottom in his submarine 20 years earlier. Henry Court was raised again, but hit 60-mile-per-hour gale-force winds in 1934 on a trip from Holland, Michigan to Chicago and smashed against breakwaters near Muskegon. Barge 115 was on Lake Superior in December 1899, when the moorings attaching it to its steamship consort broke in a storm. The crew managed to land it on Pick Island in Ontario and then built a raft out of the wreckage, which they sailed to the mainland in safety. Whew. Five down. 38 to go. SS E. B. Bartlett sank off Cape Cod, 1916. SS Thomas Wilson collided with the SS George Hadley and sunk in 1902 just outside of Duluth, Minnesota. Barge 102 foundered off Cape Charles, Virginia. Barge 103 foundered off Sandy Hook, New Jersey. Barge 104, founded in Cleveland, Ohio. Barge 105 foundered off Fire Island, New York. Barge 110 exploded, burned, and sank at St. Rose, Louisiana. Eh, and then it struck me. I flipped back towards the top of McDougal's Great Lakes Whalebacks, an actual book I paid human money for, to Barge 101. McDougal's first whaleback. When it was launched in June of 1888, his wife, Emmeline, is said to have announced, there goes our last dollar. But she was wrong. In the near term. I mean, eventually she was pretty much right, but Alex got at least a few years of told-you-sos before she got hers. Barge 101 sank four years after it launched, near Detroit, but then it was raised again and sold to Barrett Manufacturing Company, who turned it over for ocean use. On December 3rd, 1908, she was being towed by the tugboat John Hughes, bound for Halifax, Nova Scotia, when both ships were lost with all hands off of Seal Island. But that wasn't what caught my eye. To me, the important thing about Barge 101 wasn't where it sank, or that Emmeline spit on its creation. The important thing wasn't that it was the first of McDougall's whalebacks. It was that it was the smallest. There were a few whaleback barges that were only a tiny bit bigger. Barge 201, which was stranded on Sandy Hook in 1919, Barge 202, which foundered off Fairniget, New Jersey in 1908, but Barge 101 was the shortest whaleback ever built. And it was 178 feet long, more than four times longer than the Fool Killer. God damn it. Once I realized there were no whalebacks, even nearly on the same scale as the Fool Killer, the many problems with my theory started popping out of the background. To me, these obscure boats were a clever solution. To Frenchy Deneau and the people reporting on the Fool Killer, whalebacks were still a part of life in Chicago. In 1915, there were 26 of them on the water, including the S.S. Christopher Columbus, which was moored at the Rush Street Bridge right where the Fool Killer was found. From my 21st century vantage point, mistaking these weird novelty boats for submarines seemed natural. But at the time of the discovery, no one would have. I was back at square one. Worse than that, really. In the course of trying to solve this mystery, I'd managed instead to knock down the only two explanations out there. Laudner Phillips couldn't have built the thing, and now neither could Alexander McDougal. I went through a couple of other long-shot possibilities. There was a short entry in a not-too-credible 1880s encyclopedia that mentioned a submarine being displayed in London in 1859, built by a Mr. Delaney of Chicago. That sent me down a frustrating rabbit hole, as I couldn't identify who the hell this Delaney could possibly have been. But eventually, I concluded it was an associate of Laudner Phillips, and that what he had displayed in London were merely the plans for a submarine, which was never built. Then there were a few other non-submarine submarines, boats which, like the whalebacks, looked approximately enough like they might go underwater that perhaps somebody might believe they did. In 1820, Muhammad Ali, not that one, the governor of Egypt, gave King George IV a gift a 70-foot-long granite obelisk built circa 1500 BC called Cleopatra's Needle. But nobody could figure out a good way to ship the thing to London until 1877, when a professor named Erasmus Wilson decided to give it a go. He built a barge, which he also called the Cleopatra's Needle, a big, floating metal cylinder just large enough to hold the obelisk and just round enough to roll it to its final display place once it made it up the Thames. The barge Cleopatra's Needle, with the statue Cleopatra's Needle inside it, was abandoned in a strong gale on the Bay of Biscay in October of 1877, but it was found a few days later and towed to Spain. The barge was repaired, international governmental hands were shaken, and both needles were delivered to London on January 15, 1878. The ancient one was put on display, while its boat was broken up for scrap. So, not our fool killer. An inventor and super rich 19th century railroad magnate and Confederate sympathizer named Ross Winans built a series of cigar boats starting in 1858. The cigar boats look very submarine y, but for the giant fan wheels that ringed their midsections, spinning around the circumference of the ships. This design, to put it charitably, didn't work very well, but Winans took it from one nation to the next, trying to pawn off the crappy idea. Initially in Maryland, before moving to Southampton in England, and then St. Petersburg, Russia. Never Chicago, though, or anywhere close. Long shot after long shot. Failure after failure. This whole thing was turning out to be a frustrating, maddening bust. When I first went down the path of submarines that weren't submarines, I thought I was so clever. A month later, I was stupid, stupid, stupid. I'd look at the photos of the fool killer being dragged out of the river and think, this is impossible. This couldn't have happened. Maybe the fool killer wasn't just not a submarine. Maybe it never was anything. Maybe it was a hoax after all. But those same photos told me that was wrong. It clearly had existed. There it was, big and long and metal, its pokey little nose and lines of tiny round windows, like shiny buttons down a navy jacket. The newspaper articles and carnival ads for all their unreliable details weren't just inventing the whole thing, and Frenchie, for all his Barnum and Bailey flair, had no way to build it, even if it were in fact just a phony steel shell. So, I settled upon a new fool-killer theory, the random crackpot. That's the whole thing. A random crackpot. Some nameless, unknown eccentric, lost to history probably forever. The random crackpot theory had its problems, of course. What generic nobody could have welded together a well-made steel submarine 40 feet long, decked with glass portholes, and gotten it into the Chicago River unnoticed around the turn of the last century? And even if the random crackpot theory held, it was a narrative loser. It was no good way to end a story. But it was all that was left. So I put the saga of the fool killer away. I decided to tell other stories instead. But it wouldn't leave my head It burrowed like a tick into the back of my neck, irritating the skin, refusing to be ignored. Towards the end of last year, I figured I'd take a short little break from making The Constant, just a couple of weeks. In December, there would be three Tuesdays that hit my release schedule instead of the regular two. I didn't have any ad buys for that third one, and I didn't want to charge my patrons for an extra episode, so I'd rerun something, maybe last year's Christmas story, and take the extra two weeks to figure out what to do next. There were plenty of applicants. The usual stuff bad science, moral panics, moneyed lunatics, buying influence against all reason. I could talk about the open polar sea or John Cleve Sims, who convinced enough Americans that the earth was hollow that he got a couple of arctic explorations going. But in the back of my head, where the tick lives, I was still thinking about the fool killer, more and more. Eventually, Heather said, "You should do what you're most excited about. You should do the fool killer." I could. It was what I wanted. I could tell the story of the Eastland disaster and Frenchie Deneau. I could talk about Peter Neeson, the humble accountant who built nutty boats in his free time when he called himself Mr. Bowser. I could talk about the Fenian raids and Professor Tuck being committed by his family to stop him spending all their money on submarines. And John Holland, who thrice won awards from the Navy that they refused to give him. I could even talk about the Polar Sea. Even talk about John Cleve Sims. But I didn't have an ending. That was a problem. Whatever. I decided before Christmas, I'd just tell the story anyway. Maybe I could end by talking about Alexander McDougall and his whalebacks about the time I thought I'd figured things out. Or maybe I'd just have to end imagining the random crackpot. Make it a meditating bunch of Susan Sontaggery on the impossibility of certitude and yada yada yada. That'd be fine. Koenig didn't solve the Adnan Syed case either. I began going over my old research and adding more to it. Fresh reading, rereading... I won't pretend I didn't have a faint little bird within my breast still hoping that the solution would jump out at me. Of course I did. But I didn't really think it would happen. So, naturally, that's when it did. Just after Christmas, three months ago, I began solving the mystery of the fool killer for the second time. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Everybody could use somebody to talk to, but traditional therapy can be expensive and inconvenient, and finding the right person is daunting. But with BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor on your own schedule in a safe and private environment through secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in relationships, depression, trauma, anxiety, LGBT matters, sleeplessness, and more. Their secure, convenient professional counseling is available worldwide as soon as 24 hours after signing up. And if you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can always request a new one. Best of all, it's affordable, with financial aid available for those who qualify. And BetterHelp is giving constant listeners 10% off their first month with discount code theConstant. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com/slash theconstant, fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the Constant. And buy The Great Courses Plus. With a nearly infinite amount of information at your fingertips, it's hard to find stuff that's accurate or factual or like useful. Which is why I love having the Great Courses Plus. Their unlimited streaming service offers thousands of objective, unbiased lectures from respected professors who really know their stuff and provide valuable, in-depth content you can trust on topics ranging from great trials of world history, to time management, to exploring exoplanets, to learning how to cook. I could use that. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere. If you're looking for more content like The Constant, I recommend checking out What Darwin Didn't Know, The Modern Science of Evolution. Darwin's theory of natural selection changed our understanding of life, the universe, and everything. But there's so much Darwin was unaware of that others have had to fill in since Origin of Species. He didn't know how heritability worked or what DNA was. He didn't have an inkling about why things age or what leads to mass extinctions. And he couldn't have dreamed of today's gene editing techniques and the opportunities and dangers they present. Stop second-guessing. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. I've arranged for my listeners to get a full month of unlimited access for free. To get your free month, sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursespluspluscom P-L-U-S the constant, one word. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant.
1: Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to
3: help make sense of all of this?
2: Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast.
1: Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages.
2: And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer. Or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time. We
1: think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast.
2: Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. I don't know how I hadn't seen it before. Well, yes I do. It's because it was barely there. Out of all the stuff I'd read about Chicago history and submarine history and the fool killer itself, there was a name that came up exactly three times in short parenthetical asides that started with words like maybe, and perhaps, and ended with phrases like, and that's all we know. There wasn't much to it. In all the noise of inventors and daredevils and competitions, it was like a tiny little whisper, only discernible with your ear directly against the door. Perhaps this is the submarine model Lewis Gatham built in 1896. Who the hell was Lewis Gatham? A few hours of furious Googling and newspaper archive searches quickly demonstrated to me why none of the people I was reading had any more to say. There was virtually nothing out there about this Lewis Gatham. A very small handful of articles about a couple of inventions, including... Well, maybe that's describing a submarine. But there was something funny about the few bits and pieces I found about this Lewis Gatham. His name was spelled differently from one sentence to the next. I started searching a little more broadly. A couple of results about a Lou Gatham. A few more when you spelled Lewis with a W. There was a Lewis Gotham that got a hit or two. And then I tried the other spelling I'd seen. G-A-T-H-M-A-N-N. Lewis Gathman. Suddenly, the dull whisper transformed into a cacophonous chorus. The name Lewis Gathman probably doesn't mean anything to you today, but a century ago, it might have. One of the first things I found about Lewis Gathman was an article in the San Antonio Light. In 1915, on the eve of America's entrance in World War I, Thomas Edison suggested that the government should create a research lab for the greatest American scientists and inventors to create new and incredible weapons of war. The Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, thought that sounded like a great idea. He formed the Naval Consulting Board, with the mission of providing the United States with, quote, Machinery and facilities for utilizing the natural inventive genius of Americans to meet the new conditions of warfare. The members of the Naval Consulting Board were among the most impressive thinkers in American life. Edison, naturally, Leo Backlund, the father of plastics, Elmer Sperry, inventor of the gyro compass, Nobel laureate Arthur Compton, who discovered that electromagnetic radiation contained particles. Matthew Bacon Sellers, an early aviation pioneer who created a ridiculous-looking quadraplane. Hudson Maxim, who made smokeless powder, Nikola Tesla, who needs no introduction. And right there in those ranks was our man, Lewis Gaffman. In the early days of the 20th century, Lewis Gaffman was one of the most notorious inventors in America. When he died, in 1917, he reportedly held more patents than any other person in the world. So what happened to him? Could he be one and the same with this Lewis Gatham? And could he be our no longer random crackpot, inventor of the foolkiller submarine? In addition to trying to tie Gathman to the foolkiller, I've also spent the last few months trying to figure out just who he was. Neither is easy. Most of the biographical info about him comes from family records, some details gleaned from newspaper and magazine articles, and a very brief entry in the 1908 edition of Who's Who in America. It's all woefully and frustratingly incomplete. Oh, and and then there's the announcement in 1873 that he's been named secretary of a German men's a cappella group. Look, I'm hanging on to every scrap I can get here. He was born August 11, 1843, in Hanover, which is now Germany, but was then part of Prussia. According to Who's Who, he studied engineering somewhere in Lundberg. Very reliable source, that Who's Who. In 1864, when he was 21, he immigrated to America, setting up in Philadelphia. It's not clear how long he stayed there, but by 1870, at the latest, he'd moved to Chicago and was living a ritzy life in a mansion overlooking Lincoln Park. I'm... Not clear on how he managed that, by the way. Up until 1874, he was working as a machinist in a factory on Erie Street, which made middling purifiers to remove wheat husks, which isn't a mansion kind of profession generally. But he was already applying for patents left, right, and center, so maybe the blinds or hinges he invented were bringing home the bacon. It's also possible that he married into money, though it doesn't seem likely. His first wife was Henrietta Schroeder. She was also a Prussian immigrant, but they seem to have met here in the States. Chicago? Philadelphia? Who knows? But in 1873, she gave birth to their first child, Emile, who will come up down the line. Henrietta Schroeder gathman gave birth to at least one more child, possibly two. In the 1880 census, there's a daughter, Emma, listed, who would have had to be born somewhere between 1875 and 1879. Henrietta Schroeder Gathman then died in childbirth on September 7, 1881. There's no record of who this baby was or whether it survived, but neither Emma nor the mystery baby ever make the public record again. I refer to Henrietta by her full name because not long after she died, Lewis remarried to another Henrietta, who was also a Prussian immigrant. Her full name was Henrietta Elhart Gathman, and with Lewis, she gave birth to at least four children, Paul, Otto, and Elma and Olga, all of whom survived at least late enough to be plaintiffs in a lawsuit on behalf of their late father in 1925, which we can definitely bookmark for later. However, Gaffman got the first mansion. Oh, yes, you heard that right. First mansion. By the mid-1870s, his fortunes were plain to see. Somewhere after 1874, he left the factory and started building purifiers of his own. His first company, Garden City Mill Furnishing Company, was a booming success manufacturing and selling tools for milling wheat flour. Garden City didn't just give Gathman more money, it also gave him more free time. By the time the first Henrietta died, Gathman doesn't seem to be concerning himself with the day-to-day operations anymore. Instead, he was spending his time on an increasingly broad and oftentimes bizarre set of inventions and patents. Most everything I can tell you about Gathman's life and personality outside of that tiny biographical sketch comes from those inventions, and they make a terrifically interesting character study. They show Gathman as a man on the move, fickle and listless, flitting from one idea to another at a rapid, impetuous clip. Like so many of the people in this story, he's given to grand pronouncements and big promises. Was Gathman a crackpot? Or was he a genius, a conman, or a visionary? When I first began investigating his many patents, I thought for sure he was a phony. There are just so many, in a multitude of different fields and areas. I thought that, at best, Lewis Gaffman was some sort of turn-of-the-century patent troll. Maybe he wasn't making all these inventions at all. Maybe he was just filing general patents for various designs in the hopes that when other people invented similar things, he could take their money. But that doesn't seem to be right. Aside from the 1925 lawsuit I alluded to before, filed after Lewis died, neither he nor his estate appear to have been litigious. More importantly, it turns out that, as best as I can tell, Gaffman was building all of the inventions he patented, or at least most of them. From the early 1870s, when that's mostly furnishings, to the late 70s, when it's mostly millery equipment, to the 1880s, when things start getting real fascinating, up through his death on June 3rd of 1917, barely a year goes by without Gathman inventing some new doodad or what's-it, and almost all of them appear to have been actual things he built, or at least designed with seriousness. Whether they all worked or not is a different question. I think I can pretty confidently divide Gathman's devices into two camps, the practical and the extraordinary. But even the simple, reasonable-sounding things tend to be controversial when you look at them more closely. Take the early milling inventions. One of his biggest early successes was called the Garden City First Break. The first break was supposed to get rid of dirt and other impurities from the crease of wheat berries as they were processed. It sure seemed to do good work. The first break collected large amounts of blue stuff that wheat makers were happy to have out of their product. But soon enough, people began to wonder whether the first break was actually doing what it said, or whether it was just scrubbing perfectly fine bits of wheat until they were gross-looking and calling them waste. I'm not entirely sure of the answer, and it doesn't seem like Miller's of the time were either, but Gathman's wheat scrubber had gone out of fashion by the turn of the century. If we fast forward towards the end of his life, we find him patenting a new method for manufacturing sugar in 1913. When I first started looking into this, it seemed like a real big deal. Gathman, I thought, had basically invented the granulated sugar we all know, love, and eat too much of today. But upon closer inspection, that impression began to fall apart. He said that his method was more efficient, giving twice as much sugar from the same amount of cane or beets than what other producers were managing. But whether there's anything to that or not, I can't say. Neither could the Louisiana Planter and Sugar Manufacturer, a trade magazine that dedicated a thousand or so words to trying to riddle out whether Gathman was offering
3: anything at all. Eventually, the periodical threw up its hands, saying... We fail to see any particular novelty in Mr. Gathman's process, although such may exist. If he can make a success of it along the lines that he indicates, he will be a benefactor to the sugar industry, and we hope that such success will be attained by him. No success as such seems to have emerged,
2: although in fairness, Gathman had the attention span of a Chihuahua. He was never going to dedicate himself studiously enough to make a golden go of the sugar world. And anyway, he was dead within four years of filing that patent. There are so many more of these practical inventions of indeterminate practicality. There's a method for drying just about anything, which he attempts to sell to one industry after another, including to the military, for making better explosives. Did it work? Did anyone buy it? I don't know. How about his 1899 water filter? Gathman claimed it could purify 100,000 gallons an hour. How? Why, ridiculously. The water was put into a sort of centrifuge, which supposedly concentrated any sediment and removed that through exits at the top and bottom of the cylinder. Then, the water was electrified, which Gathman said killed all germs. Which, I guess, probably it would, but a pretty bombastic way to go about things. Gathman's water filter was supposed to be tested at Northwestern University in November of 1899, but if it was, I can't find the results. Safe to say, though, that this system was never adopted by, like, anybody. He hits upon a fairly realistic-sounding solar energy generator in the 1890s, but rather than building and selling it to the public, he decides it should be gigantic A mountain sized memorial to physics and the sun, with continent spanning wires delivering electricity all around the country from his one plant. That didn't work out, obviously, but at least in the abstract, the idea was good and the physics sound. Then there are the more fantastical things Gathman dreamt up, and they tend to produce the opposite journey. Just one look at any of them is enough to make you say, oh, well, this guy's a loon. But two or three looks later, and your jaw begins to unhinge. The first thing I found out about Louis Gaffman was a claim he made in 1891 that he had discovered a way to produce rain. I balked real hard at that one. From the 1860s through the 1930s, rainmaking was a grand con that dozens of hucksters managed to sell to the public. The fancy-schmancy pseudoscientific term for this is pluviculture. And we've already talked about a few of the great pluviculturalists in past episodes, including the American frontier-shaping fallacy that rain follows the plow, and the misguided experiments of breakfast cereal magnate C.W. Post to dynamite the sky. But there were so many more rainmaking ideas than that, each one falling along a continuum from misguided to hoax. The only actual way known to produce rain is cloud seeding, whereby you introduce some sort of ice-forming catalyst, like dry ice or silver nitrate, into clouds, causing them to condense into rain. But cloud seeding wasn't invented until 1946. Except, that's not right. Because Lewis Gathman's pamphlet, Rain Produced at Will, perfectly described cloud seeding, all the way back in 1891. In a world replete with rain-making conmen, Gathman had managed to figure out the only non-scammy way to do it, 55 years before anybody else. So, lesson learned. Take Lewis Gathman seriously, even when it doesn't seem worth it. Let's then look at his project for that naval consulting board. At first glance, it's steampunk nonsense. A flying battleship armed with lightning guns that could fly over enemy lines and destroy an army in minutes. Dig a little deeper, and things get more complicated. The lightning gun is pretty ludicrous, but that part, it turns out, isn't Gathman's. That's Tesla's contribution. Lewis Gathman was experimenting with flying machines before Wilbur and Orville took off at Kitty Hawk in December of 1903. Three months before that, he announced that he had built what he referred to as a mechanical automobile airship. My favorite headline concerning that announcement comes from the Washington Times. It read, in part, Flying through air, a problem solved. Invention, however, of no commercial value. In fact, Gathman went to great pains to repeatedly make clear that he didn't think flying would ever actually be practicable, and also that human powered flight would never have anything to do with wings. So, those are very bad guesses. Yet, When you read a little deeper into his automobile airships, it gets harder to laugh. His descriptions of his airships sound quite a lot like helicopters. He even uses the term hover as though nobody's ever thought to before. What's more, he says that he's built and successfully flown a small model of his copter, By the time his automobile airship has morphed into the aerial dreadnought in 1916, flying by airplane is common, but Gathman's pseudocopter designs have improved as well. Now, they never got built, and the scale of his vision is much too large to have ever functioned. But the principle of his idea is, again, sound. And if his model indeed flew as he said it did, it would have been an important moment in aviation history, which is how the press treated it. So was this guy full of it, or what? It's spectacularly hard to tell. And not just from here in the future. Reporters and scientists of his time weren't sure what to do with Gathman either. Whenever Gathman files a new patent, or unveils an experiment, or a prototype, or whatever, there's this flurry of breathless coverage. World changed forever, news at 11. But under that, there's also usually some skepticism. A lot of subjunctive caveats if this new device functions as Gathman promises, and so forth. By the late 1890s, there are two other tropes that start popping up in stories about Gathman. One is an ever-growing list of his failures. Okay, so now he says he's got an airship, but what about the sun-powered electric mountain? And what about the plan to cure Chicago of cholera? Where's the follow-through, Lewis? The other pat part of Gathman coverage is the way an ever-growing percentage of articles about him tend to end. It starts in the 1880s, but by 1903 it's almost a joke. Nearly every story written about the man and his plans ends with some variation on we wish him luck. It's tremendously backhanded. Mr. Gathman of the Gathman Gun has announced a new plan for this, that, and the other today. It's an impressive-sounding invention, but what about the airship, and what about the torpedo, and what about the telescope? If this device functions as Gathman promises, it will no doubt revolutionize this or that and make him a great fortune. We wish him luck. Oh, the gun and the telescope. We've got to talk about those. Of all the many, 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 I stress this, many Gathman inventions, the ones that are best known are his weapons. Around the same time Lewis created cloud seeding, he was also using some of the same technology to cool cannons. By introducing supercooled carbonic acid to gun barrels... Gathman thought he could prevent them from overheating, allowing for a faster rate of fire. The idea made perfect sense, and prototype experiments were successful, but as with so many of Gathman's plans, I can't figure out whether the cooling portion of Gathman's gun worked. But there is so much more to say about the Gathman gun. It exemplifies this part of the Gaffman riddle, where bluster, propaganda, credulity, and personal grievance duke it out in an impenetrable, spinning cartoon cloud of a melee. That initial idea, for the quick-firing carbonic acid-cooled cannon, seems to have come to Gathman in late 1890 or early 1891. The snowballing of subsequent ideas that would eventually culminate in the Gathman gun system followed almost immediately. In September of 1891, he tested that first invention at Fort Sheridan in Chicago, and while the test was informal, both Gathman and the military observers on site touted it as a success. By the next month, Gathman was waving around something much bigger than a gun that doesn't overheat. Literally much bigger. Over the next few years, he designed larger and larger cannons, up to a 16-inch gun that positively dwarfed any then in service. But that wasn't the important part. As numerous legislators and military personnel noted over the next decade, a gun but bigger isn't really an invention. Instead, the real bread and butter of Gathman's system was the shells. Let me hand off the description duty to the Roanoke Times, October 4th, 1891, less than a month after the first test of the cooling barrel. Louis Gathman, discoverer of the Chicago
1: process of producing rain, has also invented a new method of throwing dynamite shells. Ready? Ready? Here comes that first standard Gathman press caveat. If Mr. Gathman's scheme proves to be what he claims, the naval battle of the future will be a very brief affair, but full of results. The destructive agent in wars of the coming century will be dynamite, nitroglycerin, and gun cotton, unless in the meantime a more powerful explosive shall be discovered. Oh, 1891. 1891. If you only knew. It is a well known fact that a shell containing 200 pounds of dynamite will blow the biggest iron cloud afloat out of the water if protected against its side or on deck. The trouble has been discovering a means of throwing the treacherous explosive that would be effective and at the same time safe for the manipulators of the gun. Fired from an ordinary cannon, the dynamite shell explodes in the barrel of the arm carrying death and destruction in its path.
2: All right, so that's the problem. You can shoot an explosive shell from a cannon, but then it'll explode in the barrel. Or you can shoot one with an air gun, but then it doesn't go far enough. So what's Gathman's solution? The powder chamber is of much larger caliber
1: than that through which the projective is thrown. Back of the powder charge are two capsules, or brass cylinders, containing carbonic acid gas at a pressure of 800 pounds to the square inch. Each is fitted with two plugs, the larger end being inside. Upon firing the gun, the force of the explosion drives the plugs inward, releasing the gas, which, being at a temperature of about 70 degrees below zero, absorbs the heat produced by the exploded powder, thus preventing heating of the ordnance and at the same time destroying none of the propelling force. This keeps the barrel of the gun cool, permits rapid and continuous firing, and greatly prolongs the
2: life of the ordnance. Got it? Basically, he's going to use freezing cold gas behind the dynamite shell to keep it too cold to explode until it hits its target. This is the first draft of Gathman's dynamite gun system, and he told the media he'd successfully tested the concept with a a three-and-a-half-inch caliber cannon. Then, he made a bold proclamation, one of
4: many he makes throughout his life. The present ship of war will be comparatively powerless against a battery of eight-inch guns of this make, throwing shells containing 100 pounds of dynamite, a distance of six miles No armor plating, though of steel alloyed with nickel and thickened out to the utmost carrying capacity of a ship, could withstand a blow from a bomb of this kind exploding on the side or deck. The building of heavy armored, expensive ships may as well be dropped. The warship of the future will be the light, speedy cruiser.
2: Over the next ten years, Gathman continued building, experimenting, refining, and testing his explosive ordnance concept. The first proper demonstration was conducted a mile off of Fort Sheridan, on Lake Michigan. A nine-inch cannon was loaded with his special dynamite shell, pointed out into the open water, and tied to an electric trigger with a long spool of wire to keep the observers at a great distance from the firing. A wise precaution, it turned out because when the plunger was pushed, the shell, the cannon, and the boat they were floating on were all blown to smithereens. Later tests, seemingly, were more successful. In 1896, Gaffman filed multiple patents pertaining to his gun system, including one for a special fuse, which seems to have been the magical element he'd been missing. After that, he won the approval of several high-ranking Navy officers and a number of powerful congressmen, all of whom began working on his behalf to get the Gathman gun officially sanctioned by the U.S. military. But plenty of other legislators and military brass, shall we say, wished Gathman luck. Explosive shells were difficult to build so that they didn't blow up right away, yes. But, even if Gathman had solved that problem, there was a lively debate about whether a safe and functioning exploding shell was worthwhile anyway. Would having an explosive go off next to the hull of a battleship actually be more effective than an armor-piercing shell that ripped right through it? Lots of people didn't think so. Understandably, right? Lots of that explosive force would be wasted, going off in every wrong direction and pushing broadly against the side of a ship instead of through it. But supporters of Gathman's concept said it didn't matter. The explosive force of the gun-cotton-stuffed shells was so great that even with all that spent energy, it would still be more effective much more effective than conventional ammunition. As the argument went on, and while his advocates tried to secure him federal funding, Gaffman went about building a small stockpile of his notorious projectiles, with the help of his first son, Emile. Locations here get a little tough to suss out. The shells were built during 1898 at Carnegie Steelworks in Pittsburgh, under the supervision of Emile. Or else, at the Bethlehem Steel Company, under the supervision of Lewis. But Emile was by then living in Baltimore? or else Washington, D.C., where Lewis also moved to sometime around 1898, except that both of them were also still living in Chicago and heading companies there. It's all quite confusing, but I guess, in the grand scheme of things, not too important. Although it's worth saying that while all this ammo making and lobbying were happening, Lewis was also supposedly working on a host of other inventions, including his first helicopter airship, which he said he managed to fly for two hours in Chicago until it ran out of gas. Contemporaneous sources totally and completely disagree on the efficacy of the Gaffman gun. Between 1898 and 1900, several fairly large-stage tests of it appear to have been conducted. But to what end? Some say they were tremendously, remarkably, unbelievably successful, and that Gaffman's new system was proving to be the most deadly and destructive weapon of war ever forged by man. Others say the shells did nothing at all. Still others say that they blew up more guns, just like they did that first time off of Fort Sheridan. Are any of these accounts true? Are all of them? Who the hell knows? With each successive account, Gathman attracts both more believers and more skeptics, each of whom sounded off in newspapers, journals, and even the congressional record to state emphatically that Gathman was a genius and a fraud. In 1900, his advocates finally succeeded. They got $65,000 earmarked for the construction of his 16-inch super cannon, and another $10,000 for the shells. The Senate debate shows some members were hesitant to okay the money, but no more than they were to finally award John Holland the funds to build his thrice-award-winning submarine. Both Holland and Gathman got their longed-for government largesses in the same funding bill. It won't be the last time they're mentioned in the same breath. After the gigantic, 44-foot-long cannon was built and the shells put together, some more money had to be put aside to create proper targets at which to fire them. The targets were meant to simulate the most heavily armored hull of a battleship conceivable, a foot-thick nickel-steel plates that were set up at Sandy Hook, New Jersey, alongside the humongous gun. As a control experiment, a regular, standard, Navy-issue armor-piercing cannon and rounds would also be fired. The two weapons were tested against one another on October 26, 1900. According to Gathman, his invention was the winner, far and away. According to virtually everyone else, including Elhue Root, Secretary of War, it was a miserable failure. The first round barely dented the plate. The second left a dish-shaped imprint, but otherwise did little harm. The third round sent a crack down the steel. That was it. In contrast... The much smaller 12-inch Army service rifle with the armor-piercing round immediately went straight through the plate, and the whole thing was almost totally destroyed with just one shot. A second round further blew away the second plate, and a third totally and completely finished the job. The Navy board report concludes flatly.
1: There is nothing in the Gathman system to recommend its adoption in the public service of the United States or to warrant further experiments.
2: But that was hardly the end of the matter. As far as the American military was concerned, the Gathman system was a total bust, and so was the whole idea of explosive ordnance. But elsewhere, a different government was reaching the opposite conclusion. On May 27, 1905, the Russian and Japanese naval fleets met between Korea and southern Japan at the Battle of Tsushima. We definitely don't have time to explain the Russo-Japanese War right here, so let's just say this. Tsushima ended it. The Japanese almost entirely destroyed Russia's Pacific Fleet, sinking 21 ships and capturing seven more. Nearly 4,400 Russians were killed and almost 6,000 captured. Casualties on the Japanese side were minimal. It was the most decisive naval battle since Trafalgar, and Japan owed their success to a number of factors. Admiral Tojo was a strategic genius, the Japanese fleet was larger and better trained, its guns longer, and, maybe most importantly of all, they had wireless telegraphs while the Russians were stuck waving semaphore flags. But Tojo had another secret weapon on his side. Explosive shells. The top-secret Shimosa munitions of the Japanese fleet ripped the surprised Russian Navy to shreds. Nobody had ever seen a weapon like it before. Well, aside from Louis Gathman, that is. After Tsushima... Gathman claimed that he had sold his fuse designs to the Japanese Navy, and that is how they had manufactured the Shimosa shells and beaten Russia. I, I very much doubt it. But whether the Japanese exploding shells were based on Gathman's designs or not, probably not, they did prove that his concept had some serious merit. Gathman renewed and redoubled his calls that the American military should buy his designs, but the Navy brass would have none of it. From 1905 until basically the time Gathman died, the two sides duked it out in the papers and in the legislature. The fight called corruption on both sides. Gathman said that Navy officers were engaged in a complicated payola scheme and that the armor trust was conspiring to keep his invention down because if his guns were adopted, their thick steel hulls would no longer be necessary. Incredibly, this also wasn't entirely bullshit. I mean, the part about Gathman himself was, but a Senate investigation did show that private arms makers were basically giving kickbacks to officers who successfully tested their products in the form of commissions for anything they sold to the Navy. Meanwhile, high-ranking members of the Navy charged that Gathman was exerting political influence to try to bilk the government out of more money for his phony baloney gun system, which, you won't be surprised to hear, also was at least partly true. But what wasn't true was that the explosive ordnance was useless, a claim that various American admirals and generals continued to make against Gathman up until August 4th of 1914, when the German army arrived at the city of Liege along with their secret weapon, the Big Bertha. The Big Bertha was a howitzer cannon that destroyed fortress after fortress during the German advance in World War I. They were humongous, 32 feet long, 17-inch caliber barrel, and they fired explosive ordnance. In fact, in almost every respect, they sounded a whole lot like the Gathman gun. Because maybe they were one and the same? This section of the Gathman gun story is the most perplexing of all. After reports of the Big Berthas made way to the U.S., Gathman told anybody who would listen that he had sold his gun to the Germans. American newspapers from coast to coast ran story after story, carrying exactly the narrative Lewis craved: that after the U.S. military had been blind to his brilliance, Germany had recognized it, and so America had missed its chance, and the world was now paying the price. This might not be B.S. Gathman had made some veiled statements about a European power buying his gun, shell, and fuse designs for a hundred grand. But that was back in the 1890s, before his system was fully realized, and before the U.S. had had the chance to turn him down. And then on the flip side, it probably is BS. Because once Germany began war criming all over Belgium and France, and American public opinion turned against the Kaiser, Gaffman's story changed. He began saying his designs had not been sold to the Germans, but stolen by the Germans. A change his surviving children would bring to international court after his death in 1925, as part of the international settlement for German damages to the United States, stemming from the Great War. The Gathman kids, and an associate named McMullen, hold on to that name too, please, sued Germany for $100 million, $1925 no less, claiming that they had violated a number of Gathman's patents in building up their army and navy. The suit was dismissed for... No, wait, let's let's come back to that too. Because we're getting dangerously close to the point here. And I'd like to avoid it at least long enough to talk about my favorite bit of Gathman trivia, the moon grass. In October 1894, the headlines rang out. Lunar vegetation. Astronomer Gathman discovers something queer on the moon. The moon. An amateur astronomer sees a patch
1: Saw of green, green on green in the moon. Leo Gathman of Chicago reiterates his somewhat
3: strange story.
4: About nine o'clock that evening, the moon was well up toward the zenith and the atmosphere was remarkably favorable for observation. The moon has always been a favorite study with me and I never miss an opportunity to study its seemingly lifeless and forbidding wastes. I was sweeping about with my telescope over its surface in the vicinity of the great crater Tycho when I suddenly saw a spot of vivid green in the midst of the blacks and whites that mark mountains and valleys. I thought I must be in error and, after wiping the eyepiece carefully, rubbed my own eyes and looked again. There it was still, a well-defined patch of green, close to the famous crater and slightly to the west. I changed the eyepiece. Still the same result. Then, though I had never suspected I was colorblind, I called in my family and several neighbors. All saw the verdant spots as I did. We watched it till eleven o'clock that night while it passed through the entire field of vision, unchanging in form or color. The next night, when I attempted more elaborate investigation, it had disappeared. I have not seen it since.
2: What was it? Gathman knew.
4: To my mind, the green spot could have been caused by nothing but vegetation, imperfection of development. Perhaps grass, perhaps forests.
2: To explain why nobody else had ever seen the moon grass, Gathman offered many excuses. He said it had burned away, or the moon absorbed all its water into the subsurface, or maybe moon grass was only very rarely green, and the rest of time it was gray, indistinguishable from the bare surface. He even admitted that maybe it wasn't grass at all. Maybe it was a message sent for the Earth to see by Martians. But the main reason Gathman gave for why nobody else could see the grass was simple. They didn't have the Gathman telescope. Aside from the giant dynamite-hurling cannon... Gathman's telescope seems to have been his proudest invention. And, like the Gathman gun, he was willing to fight for it. The astronomer Edward Emerson Barnard said that Gathman's telescope was impossible and that the Chicago inventor didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So Gathman fired back, saying that Barnard was the one who was mistaken, that he'd been using shitty telescopes for so long that he didn't understand the capabilities of a good one. As it happens, again, Gathman was partly vindicated, Barnard's diatribe about the limits of telescopes proved to be all kinds of wrong, whereas Gathman was, well, once again, I I don't know if he was right exactly or not. Barnard thought that the atmosphere made it impossible for telescopes to be much better than they were in 1894. But Gathman identified the real problem, the limits on how large you could make a lens. The larger you tried to make the glass, the harder things got. Any imperfection throughout any small part of the surface, and the whole thing was ruined. And the difference in heat between the center and the edges meant that cooling the glass evenly and avoiding the whole thing shattering became nearly impossible. Gathman's solution to this problem was to ditch building one big lens and instead build a telescope out of a bunch of smaller ones, like the compound eye of a fly, but all focused at one same point. When I first read about this idea, I thought it sounded ridiculous, but it turns out it works. Gathman had invented the Sectional Lens Telescope, a design that never really took off, not because it was bunko, but because the process for creating large reflecting telescopes through adding a layer of silver onto the curved mirrors totally leapfrogged both the capabilities of the then-dominant refracting telescopes and Gathman's sectional lens. For a brief moment, Gathman's design was top of the line, but before it could be implemented, it was obsolete. Gathman, naturally, didn't give up on his idea. He made several telescopes according to his plan and even built a large observatory in the corner tower of his Lincoln Park mansion, through which he saw the moon grass. According to the Perrysburg Journal, June 6,
0: 1896, Mr. Gathman has built a telescope with a seven inch sectional lens at his private observatory in Chicago. This instrument is working admirably and is said to be the equal of the telescope at the Northwestern University, which has a fine objective of 18 and a half inches. Gaffman has become wealthy through several other successful inventions, notably a submarine torpedo boat, the plans of which have been adopted by the German Navy. He expects to use part of his money in building a telescope. whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry, what? What was that? Back up. I said. Gathman has become wealthy through several other successful inventions, notably a submarine torpedo boat, the plans of which have been adopted by the German Navy.
2: Did you think I'd forgotten what we were here for? No way. I've become fascinated by Gathman. Even if I didn't think he was part of the Fool Killer mystery, he's a delicious riddle all of his own. Because what was his deal? He seems to have been a firm believer in his own creative genius. I don't think he was a huckster. He thought every last one of his many, many inventions was legit. But he was, at the least, deluded. He has some earth-shaking invention to change the world every month. And then before he can do any of the fine work of figuring out whether the thing functions or how to make it better, he moves on to the next earth-shaking invention to change the world. With the exception of the Gathman gun. He doesn't seem to have stayed interested in any of his own revolutionary devices for more than a couple of years. And in the case of the Gathman gun, we see the other side of things. If he did believe in something, he wasn't above bullshitting his pretty little head off to sell it. But the question at hand isn't whether Gathman's inventions work, because the invention we're interested in didn't. What we know about the Foolkiller is frustratingly bare, but the surest fact we have on it is this. It sank. Sure. It could have been partially successful, or temporarily successful, but at the end of the day, the thing ended up buried in mud in the Chicago River, abandoned, possibly along with a man and his dog. So, did Lewis Gathman build the Fool Killer? I want to be able to give you the big, certain, explosive, sure answer. I've dreamt about what music cue I'd spend all my money licensing for the moment I finally deliver the slam dunk. The leading contender is the DuckTales theme song, cued right up to Might solve a mystery Or rewrite history And then the big horns. Man, I want to play you that DuckTales song so fucking bad. I've listened to it like a hundred times in the last two months, maybe more. I fantasize about playing DuckTales. When I was writing this, I practically burst into tears thinking about the DuckTales song because I can't play it. Because I don't think that slam-dunk piece of evidence is out there. I don't know if Gathman built the fool killer. I think he did, but I don't know he did. And how much of me thinking he did is about the evidence, and how much of it is that I've married myself to the theory, well, that I'll have to leave up to you. So, here's what I do know. There is no way that Gaffman got wealthy through his submarine torpedo boat. Or not no way, but pretty close to it. Maybe he did sell some designs to the Germans, and if so, it's theoretically possible he sold the design for a submarine, along with his gun system and whatever else. But I think that's probably all bluster. I can't make the timing work out. Gaffman boasts that he's selling his inventions to the Germans before he files patents on any of them. And how's that supposed to work? I don't think the Germans stole his designs either, and neither did the court, who admonished his children and business associate for doing literally zero work to prove their case. But it is interesting that the same three designs his heirs alleged were stolen are the same three that come up as having possibly been sold. The gun, the shells, and the submarine. This also lines up conspicuously with some patents filed. Going through all of Gathman's stupid number of patents is a chore, but in 1896, there are just five. Three of them were filed on October 13th. They read, High Explosive Projectile and Gun for Throwing Same, Projectile and Gun for Throwing Same, and High Explosive Shell. One was filed the next month, on November 3rd, on behalf of Gathman, along with three others, all with the last name McMullen. The other patent assigned to Gaffman in 1896 is number 563714. Date July 7th. Location Chicago, Illinois. Description A Submarine Vessel. Compared to most of his inventions, this submarine vessel gets very few column inches in the papers. The Gathman gun was covered over a period of decades and was so well known that it even briefly became a common phrase. If you bought a fancy new expensive vacuum cleaner that didn't clean your floors as well as the old one you already had, you bought a Gathman gun. Even the tiny little inventions that Gathman himself doesn't seem to have paid any attention to, like the sugar refining process or the wheat berry vein remover, get serious discussion among very specific trade journals. The submarine, if there was a submarine, is barely documented. But barely isn't the same as not at all. Several other articles about several other inventions mention a connection to submarines. For instance, the San Francisco Chronicle, writing about his sectional lens telescope on March 5, 1894, describes Gathman as the inventor of submarine warships. And an 1897 piece in the Richmond item says that at the time, two separate American submarine torpedo boats were in the process of being perfected, one by John Holland and the other by Lewis Gathman. Those items, taken in tandem with the 1896 patent, start to get the hope afloatin'. But let's take a closer look at that patent. The first page of patent number 563714 shows a series of simple drawings. The first figure is a picture of a submarine, and right off the bat, it is very exciting. It looks like a long tube with a series of portholes down the side. It's crude, composed of just 30 or 35 lines, and it's important to say that patent drawings are frequently very far removed from the things they're patenting, but when I first saw this, I jumped out of my seat. It looked like the Fool killer. The following two pages, on the other hand, made me less giddy. Following the figure on page one, there are two pages of description and explanation. In them, Gathman declares that he has invented, quote, "...certain new and useful improvements in submarine vessels."
4: The object of the invention is to provide a substantial and seagoing boat that can be submerged to render it inaccessible to an enemy's fire, while at the same time its course can be regulated and controlled with certainty by the pilot. So far so good, right?
2: Well, hold on. He goes on to describe a submarine vessel capable of firing weapons that sound a lot like his gun shells, but then the disappointing part.
4: The construction of the vessel and its armament is not a part of my invention, and I contemplate applying the invention to any submarine vessel. Yeah,
2: it doesn't make sense, right? But it does. Because the patent for a submarine vessel isn't actually a patent for a submarine vessel. It's a patent on navigation systems for a submarine vessel. Gathman's invention, or at least the one this patent describes, is for a series of periscopes, which solved two problems. The first problem was how to aim and fire accurately underwater, which Gathman proposes taking care of through a series of periscopes that would act like a gun sight for the torpedo and or Gaffman gun. The other problem was how to keep your bearings when locked in a steel tube underwater. Traditional compasses would be confused by all the metal and electronics surrounding it. Gathman dreamt up a special wooden tube rising out of the top of the sub with a compass at its top. The compass would then be unaffected by the machinery of the boat, and a series of mirrors and lenses would render it readable to the captain. A pretty clever fix, but pretty disheartening to me, and to you, assuming you want to solve this fucking thing with me. Is this the extent of Gathman's work with submarines? A couple of periscopes, a gun sight, and a compass? It's possible. An article in the June 4, 1899 edition of the Leavenworth Times announces that Gathman has an invention to make compasses work on steel battleships and in submarines. The World, out of New York, said on August 9, 1896, that he'd invented a new way to navigate submarines, which describes the devices in the patent exactly. The San Francisco Chronicle, on August 22nd, 1896, makes a similar claim that Gathman has invented a new form of submarine steering. Both the Chronicle and The World note that Gathman's invention can be tested, quote, without the expense of constructing a submarine boat. Each paper says that there are already several submarines out there, any of which Gathman might connect his hollow masts to in order to prove their worth. Which is kind of a weird thing to say, because as we've examined in tedious detail, there really weren't several submarines out there Gathman could have borrowed for the task. In 1896, Hollins got one. Lake has maybe one or two, but they're in Europe, Ditto Nordenfeld, Raditz's is rusting out in Milwaukee, Baker's is filled with sand at the bottom of Lake Michigan, and Professor Tuck's two boats have been broken down into scrap and sold for parts by his debt collectors. There are pretty much zero submarines for Gathman to slap his periscopes on. Unless he built his own. Feels like a reach? Well, hold your horses. Because while Gathman expressly states towards the top of his patent description that he is not patenting a boat, just the navigation equipment, he continues throughout the document explaining the whole thing as a submarine vessel. Which is confusing, unless you've spent a bit of time looking at patents. In the paragraph explaining that he's not trying to claim the vessel itself, Gathman also says he's not claiming the torpedo shell or the gun as his inventions either. But obviously both are. He filed separate patents for all of those. In this patent, Gathman's not saying he invented the gun or torpedo, because this patent is about navigation. So him saying the boat is not his invention doesn't actually mean the boat is not his invention. I know, it's very annoying. But you can only take out a patent on some new, novel thing, something you invented. Gaffman invented the gun and the shells and even a torpedo. But he didn't invent submarines. If Gaffman built a submarine or even planned a submarine with all established technology, then the only thing to patent on it would be the navigation system. And indeed, that is how the patent reads. Here, take the closing where Gaffman declares, in summation,
4: I claim as my invention, one. A submarine vessel provided with an upright tube or hollow mast extending from below the deck of the same and having a transparent upper end, a compass in the upper end portion of said tube or mast having transparent upper and lower sides, and a telescope in the lower end portion of the tube or mast. Two. A submarine vessel provided with an upright tube or hollow mast extending from below the deck of the same... Yeah, yeah, yeah. skip ahead. Three. A submersible vessel provided with an upright tube or hollow mast extending from below the deck of the same...
2: Okay, okay, you get it. He repeatedly claims the vessel as his own, but the part of it that is novel and therefore patentable is the navigation system. This is all very intriguing, right? I hope. But it's also quite speculative. And boy, isn't it weird that Gathman and all these newspapers would write about some periscopes but not say anything about an actual submarine? Talk about burying the lead. Sure, but the truth is, I buried it for them. On July 7th, 1896, Gathman filed his patent for the submarine vessel. A month later, Two articles pop up talking about the Periscopes, and then another one in the Leavenworth Times in 1899. But back up a year before the patent filing, and things get really exciting. On June 24th, 1895, the Times Democrat out of New Orleans has a headline reading, New Torpedo Boat, Invention of Lewis Gathman of Chicago. July 8th, 1895, The Daily Ocean: New Torpedo Boat. The Invention of Louis Gathman, a Chicago man. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, September 30th, 1895. It defies the water.
1: Wonderful torpedo and submarine battle boat invented by Lewis Gathman of Chicago.
2: January 19th, 1896. The St. Paul Daily Globe. Submarine torpedo boat made by Professor Louis Gathman. The descriptions given in these articles vary a bit on the particulars. The Times-Democrat says it is to be powered by oil, while the interocean implies a diesel engine, and the Daily Globe says steam. The Times-Democrat gives it a top speed of 26 knots, which would be remarkable if true. The interocean says it needs a crew of 12. Both say its internal mechanisms and firing are powered by electricity. But each paints the picture of a cigar-shaped boat. Each says it's propelled by a screw at the rear end. Each says it'll have either two or three conning towers, as well as the periscope system we're already acquainted with. All agree that it's built out of steel, and each says the final length of the boat is to be 120 feet, but that for now, Gathman has built and tested only what they refer to as a smaller model. How big a model? Like a model model? Or, like, say, just off the top of my head, for example, a 40-foot-long model big enough for a man and a dog. The two earliest articles, from New Orleans and Chicago, both say that Gaffman plans on sending the model to the German government. That makes it sound like it must be something smallish. But, three months later, the Pittsburgh Gazette says he piloted it in Lake Michigan over the summer and, quote, had as spectators officers of this and several other governments. Later on, both Gaffman and his family would claim that the German government came to Chicago to see his inventions, including his gun, shells, and submarine torpedo boat. At various points, they would claim to have sold those designs or else had them stolen. Maybe there's a kernel of truth in there somewhere after all. The Big Berthas and U-boats of World War I weren't the same as Gathman's designs, but it's worth noting that he is not the only one who claimed to have received interest from Deutschland. Two other men working on howitzers with explosive ordnance told stories pretty nearly identical to Gathman's. One was Hudson Maxim, inventor of smokeless powder and fellow member of the Edison War Scientist Group in the First World War. At approximately the same time as Gathman, Maxim was also working on exploding shells and also also working on a submarine torpedo boat. The other was Edmund Zelinsky, inventor of the pneumatic dynamite torpedo gun and also the namesake of John Philip Holland's second submarine, the Zelinsky boat, which he helped fund and build. Both Maxim and Zelinsky said that the German governments came sniffing around for their boats and guns. They didn't end up building any of their designs, per se. But it is more than plausible that they came scouting looking for tips, and even possibly paying for them. Let's take a minute to try to get this timeline straight. Somewhere before the summer of 1895, Gaffman invents a submarine. It's to be fitted with his torpedoes and maybe even one of his dynamite-throwing guns, as well as his mirror-periscoped navigation system. But by July, all that exists is a model. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, that model was big enough to ferry Gathman and guests, possibly official German guests, in Lake Michigan sometime that summer. Then, no news. A year later, Gathman patents the gun, the shell, the torpedo, and the navigation system. But the boat itself is gone. Gathman doesn't mention it in his submarine vessel patent, although that in itself doesn't mean much, and the newspapers of the time only talk about the periscopes and compass. If Gathman's model was, in fact, the fool-killer, that gap seems like the perfect window in which to sink it. But how? We're back to the same old problems again. The first vexing question of the fool-killer mystery was how something like this got made without anybody noticing. The Gathman hypothesis answers that. People did notice. Patents were filed, drawings were drawn, articles were written. But the second vexing question is, how did something like this sink without anybody noticing? Maybe I don't have to address that. Maybe it's enough to say, look, this is the only guy who was building steel submarines in Chicago in the time frame available, so there you have it. If we stop right here, I think we can give Gaffman 60-40 odds, with something like 37 on another random crackpot and 3% reserved for the nearly impossible Laudner-Phillips claim. But I believe the Gathman theory gets us a little further than that. As far as the man and his dog are concerned, oh, who knows? But I've come to give a lot more credence to the notion that Frenchie Deneau planted the remains. It seems like such a silly and unlikely thing to do, but I think the alternatives are more implausible still. Those alternatives being that either A. A man built a big steel submarine in Chicago so secretly that when he and his dog drowned in it, nobody even knew there was anything to look for, Or, B, some crew of people built a big steel submarine in Chicago, and when one of them and his dog drowned in it, the rest of them decided to never tell anyone ever, 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 even after everything was discovered. All things considered, Frenchie faking the bodies seems far more explicable to me. We should remember, actually, they weren't bodies. Just body parts. A few bones and a skull or two, either of the dog or the man or both. We don't know. He didn't even have to plant them on the boat. He only had to say later that he'd found them. If that's right, then nobody had to be inside the Fool Killer when it went to the bottom. And that makes sense to me. Because maybe the reason the submarine sinking didn't make headlines is because it didn't sink. Not exactly, at least. What we know about Lewis Gaffman is that he was constantly inventing things and then moving on. It seems like he was never able to focus on any one project for the necessary length of time to truly make it work, with the exception, perhaps, of the Gathman gun and its dynamite shells, which he was working on at the same time as the submarine. And this is also why he appears at first glance, and sometimes on the second or the fifth or the twelfth, to have been a hack. He makes all these stupefyingly bold claims about some new invention or another, the media goes temporarily nuts over them, then he moves on, and so do they. Each of Gathman's many inventions exists on this curious knife's edge between the plausible and the ridiculous. Take the rainmaking. Gathman made an actual discovery there, a really big one, something important enough that it could have assured the immortality of his name. So did he conduct rigorous tests to confirm and improve his method? No. Instead, he made overreaching promises. In 1892, the Chicago River was so high that it threatened to push wastewater out to the city's water cribs and create a terrible cholera epidemic. That fear, in advance of the 1893 World's Fair, eventually caused the city to reverse the river. But before that, Gathman offered his plan that he would make it rain nonstop over the city and that the coldness of the rain would kill the germs. The cholera epidemic thankfully never came and Gathman's plan was never tested, Obviously, it would have failed. But after his outlandish claim, people began to suspect that he was just a crank. On April 23, 1899, the Interocean published a sort of overview of Gaffman's life and works up to that point, in anticipation of the military tests of his gun at Sandy Hook. It notes how the city began to look on the man with suspicion after the cholera plan. It also leans back and forth in its description of the inventor, at times doubting and at times praising him, often within the same paragraph, even within the same sentence. The 1899 Interocean article lays out my hypothesis for the fate of the fool killer. It says that before the first test of his cannon, he managed to invent a submarine torpedo boat, that he'd built a model, that the model worked, that every indication was that he had a success on his hands, but that he was too distractible to get it done. He was smitten by his eponymous gun and its exploding bullets. So he let his perfectly good submarine waste away. Maybe that's why the sinking didn't make headlines or capture attention. Because it didn't happen thanks to a cataclysm or an accident, but because of disinterest. Perhaps. But was it in the river to deteriorate there in the first place? That's the hardest part to prove. The St. Paul Daily Globe article puts the model in his company studio. What company studio? If we go back to April 11, 1894, the Chicago Tribune shows a new incorporation, the L. Gathman Company, whose mandate was to manufacture several things, including telephones, torpedoes, and submarine boats. Tracking down the address of the L. Gathman Company took some doing. It was easier to find its officers, the same McMullen who sued Germany for stealing subdesigns after the war, and Gathman's eldest son, Emile. When the fool killer was raised, none of our players are left in Chicago. Lewis was dying in D.C., McMullen had moved to New York City, and Emile was working to bring his father's last invention to fruition, a way to defend against submarines, called a depth charge. Yeah, that's right. Not long before he died, Lewis dreamed up a way to drop bombs underwater and have them explode at depth to collapse enemy U-boats. And after his death, Emil took up that work and actually succeeded. The fuses used on World War I depth charges were perfected by Emil Gathman after initial designs from his father. But anyway, where were they all in 1895? After a substantial amount of digging, I discovered an address, but before I give it up, let's reflect on what we're looking for. The exact location where the fool killer was found is unknown, but we can draw a little mental map of the area. The Loop is the heart of Chicago, downtown, where most of the big skyscrapers and elevated train tracks are today. The Loop is bounded on the east by Lake Michigan. The Chicago River flows out of the lake, or into it before 1900, at the north end of the Loop, and shoots straight west to Wolf Point, where it splits, with one branch going north ish and the other straight south, forming the western boundary of the loop. If we could put the L. Gathman Company anywhere on the river, that'd be great. But if we could put it somewhere in the vicinity of Wolf Point, a few blocks east or a few blocks south, that'd be a slam dunk, smoking gun, ducktail sort of discovery. The reporting of the Fool Killer puts it anywhere from the Clark Street Bridge just east of Wolf Point down to around Washington Street on the South Branch. And the L. Gaffman Company? Well, it was on Washington Street. 40 West Washington Street. That's smack dab in the center of the loop. Landlocked. Today, 40 West Washington is where you'll find Chicago's gigantic, enigmatic Picasso statue. Five blocks east of the river. Five healthy, Chicago-sized blocks. Any New Yorker who's found themselves in the Windy City looked at a map and said, oh, it's only 10 blocks, let's walk, can tell you that Chicago blocks are long. Five blocks is more than half a mile. So, that's a bummer. And it's the bummer that bummerly concludes our evidence. I still think that when you take into account the report of letting the sub waste away on the sidelines... The odds of Gathman being our man increased to, I don't know, what, eighty-twenty, Something like that. But without being able to put his studio on the river, I don't think we can never know for sure. Which is the whole point of why I've spent six or so hours of your time on this story. When I came back home from a long, grueling day trying to finally put a nail on this story, I told Heather, I don't think I'm going to be able to prove this. And she looked at me the way my mother did when I was six years old and told her that my hamster wouldn't wake up. It was a resigned, knowing sadness that said, how did you ever think you were going to prove this? If the proof were out there, there'd be no story to tell. The story is, in effect, about the absence of proof. The state of existence is ostensibly binary. Things either happen or they don't. They exist or they don't exist. If I ask you what you had for lunch yesterday, you can probably tell me. If I ask you what you had for lunch three months ago, well, that's tougher. But even if you can't say what you ate on that random day, you know that you ate something. And whatever it was, it was a discreet, corporeal meal. You might say, either I had chicken salad or roast beef. But it had to be one of those things. It wasn't some superimposition of chicken salad and roast beef. Yet, once we get a sufficient distance from events, things do seem to become uncertain. In an almost quantum way. When I first started making the constant, one of my primary goals was to highlight the difficulty of certitude. The purpose of that is twofold. On the one hand, examining just how hard it is to actually know something teaches us humility, that we should not feel so confident as we do. On the other hand, I hope it also teaches us respect for the quixotic search for truth, that even the most minuscule fact available to humanity today was hard-won through diligence, perseverance, and hard work. It seems like this mystery should be knowable. That a 40-foot-long steel submarine from the late 19th century in a river in the heart of America, a city of several million people, should be traceable. But one way or the other, the foolkiller is of little to no historical import. It's a tidbit. It's trivia. If we knew for certain where it came from, it would change nothing about the world. But, it would make the dim light of understanding just a smidge brighter. And that, I think, is a worthy goal all its own. Instead, I've got to content myself with a smaller victory. When I began this series, I said that all the theories about the Fool Killer began with words like maybe. Maybe Laudner Phillips was able to build a steel submarine in 1847. Maybe Raditz's boat somehow got down to Chicago. Maybe... Holland built another ram for the Fenians. Now, at the end, I might not be able to say anything for certain, but I at least can offer a theory that begins with a stronger word. Probably. Probably the fool killer was built by the eccentric and forgotten inventor, Lewis Gathman. And it looks like, probably, we'll have to do. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois... Where in 1908, a bill collector named Edward P. Brennan succeeded in getting the city's street numbering system redesigned so that, oh, no, right, they changed the street numbers. Then, where was 40 West Washington Street in 1895? Right up against the Chicago River, exactly where the Fool Killer was found. Hit that fucking DuckTales thing.
0: Solve a mystery, or rewrite history, DuckTales, woo every day they're out there making DuckTales, woo tales of daring, do bad, and good luck tales, woo.
2: Music for today's episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Bear, Kevin McLeod, and Anime is Trash. Special thanks go out to so, so, so many people. To our Patreon supporters, including Mark Vincent, Charles Henry Corteau, Brock Russell, Joshua Trowbridge, Jack Lawrence, Thomas S. Howard, Matthew L. Daniel, Will Stegman, Sophia Colling, Mark Sost, and Eric Shurikoff. And a specifically special thanks to Patreon Peter Oliphant, who not only reminded me of the Bessemer process, but also explained the plausibility of the sectional lens telescope when I was sure it was pure fancy. I also got research assistance from Lorraine Wachna and the Newberry Library. And a special thanks go to Gus Maneri, who gave me the initial seed of this idea. Without him, there would be no fool killer. Did you think you recognized some of those cameos? You probably did. I'm deeply grateful to those who lent their voice talents to this episode. So let's give them a big Mickey Mouse Club style sign off. I'm Kavita Pele with Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them.
3: Bilal Dardai, Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic Mystery. I'm Wade Roush, and I make a podcast called Soonish. This is
1: Tamar Avishai from The Lonely Palette. Sebastian Major of Our Fake History. My name is Jake Barton of The Historium Podcast. Chelsea Weber-Smith, American
3: Hysteria.
2: Charles Gustine, host of Iconography.
3: What's up? I'm Chad the Bird. Listen
4: to Chad the Podcast, please. My name is Zachary Davis, and I'm the host of Ministry of Ideas. Phil Ritterelli and come see the Neo Futurists production of The Infinite Wrench. Visit neofuturists.org dot org to learn more.
2: And a heaping helping of thanks go out to
0: Heather Chrysler.
2: Heather not only recorded voiceover, she not only supported the making of this series even well past the point I became insufferable, but she also did it with plenty else on her plate. If you're around Chicagoland, you should go see her in the last match at Writers Theatre and check out her adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women on stage at First Folio Theatre. I am stupid proud of her. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening and following me down this road which at times seemed like it might go on forever. If you've enjoyed it, please tell a friend rate and review us on apple podcasts go to constantpodcast.com to see extra info about mcdougall's whalebacks and gaffman's uh, everything while you're there you can find our facebook twitter and instagram pages and follow us on every last one of them or go to patreon.com slash the constant to help support the show now here is my suggestion no more submarines for a while okay let's do something different next time but until then from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1895, Lewis Gathman built a submarine torpedo boat that sank in the Chicago River only to be discovered 20 years later. This has been The Constant.